welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Redemption Applied, the Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. I'm going to take the next several Sundays and preach a series, and uh, the series I want to introduce this way. So I'm, I'm titling the, the series Redemption Applied, and I'm drawing from the Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism in question number 29 asks, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? I'm going to repeat that. I want you to think on this. The question is, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And here's the answer that we have in the catechism. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. Again, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is integral, as it were, to the application of what Christ has accomplished for us, or as I'm titling this series, Redemption Applied. And so over the next several Sundays leading up to Advent, we're going to look at a series of passages that look at this very thing. The Holy Spirit's application of redemption applied. So today, let's look at 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to look at these first six verses. Here now the reading of God's Word. Beloved Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's go to Him dependently in prayer. O Lord our God, Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that you would give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
While we're not looking at this portion of 1 John today, at the beginning of this first epistle of John, John explains his purpose for writing. The reason why he has written this first letter, this first epistle. He says that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. The reason why I've written this letter to you, O church, is that your joy may be full. John writes, for our joy, put simply. And I ask you on the Sunday morning, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want joy fully? But we need to be clear. The joy that John describes is not the joy as the world understands it. Since John says... In chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So clearly he is making a distinction here between worldly joy and the joy of the Lord. So the joy that John describes is then rooted in Christ. It's why at the very beginning of this epistle, the first paragraph, he says that he is writing about the one who is from the beginning, whom John and the other apostles heard and saw with their eyes, and they looked upon and they they touched him with their hands. He refers to this one as the word of life. Of course, he's referring to Jesus himself. And just as John and the other apostles enjoyed that in-person fellowship with Jesus, John desires the same thing for you. He desires the same thing for me. That all who are, one of his favorite expressions, of God, all who are of God would enjoy a fellowship of obedience to Christ. Love for the body of Christ and discernment in living for Christ, all of which gives us Christ-exalting joy. Only the one, then, who savingly believes on the Lord Jesus Christ can know such joy. The unbeliever cannot know the kind of joy that John is describing here. And yet, let's be honest, how many of us know joyless Christians, how many of us seem joyless? How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would long to be joyful today? We want to be joyful, but it would seem that the world, the flesh, and the devil leads us, well, leads us to to undermine that very joy of which John writes. Leading some, again, if we're just honest with ourselves, leading some to wonder, I know the Bible says it. I know that it's true, but I really just wonder if it's a bit too idealistic. I wonder if that Christian joy is really a reality. John begs to differ. He confronts that very lie, a lie that does not come from the Lord, 
Because joy is an attribute of the Christian life. Joy is an attribute of the Christian life. And you say, well then, why are we not all joyful? And the answer that John gives, and of course we don't have time to go through it all today, but if I could just summarize leading up to chapter 4 and through chapter 4, John says that there are a number of hindrances to Christian joy. A number of hindrances to Christian joy, or we might call them barriers. They are, in summary, first, sin, including an unwillingness to acknowledge it and confess it. Sin is a hindrance. It's a barrier to joy. The second that John covers is a lack of love for fellow Christians. Yep, he goes there. In fact, he spends a lot of time on this subject in this epistle. A hindrance to our joy is a lack of love for fellow Christians, and specifically in the local church, where we come in contact with one another. And then the thirdly is worldliness, often manifested in seeking worldly pleasures. And none of these, sin or a lack of love for fellow believers or worldliness, none of these are compatible with the Christian life. But in our passage today, we see that the full Christian joy John desires for us is directly connected to truth. And I mean that with a capital T. The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, Scripture says just as a quick summary of what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He is the one who helps us in our weakness, as He is the one who indwells us. And He intercedes for us according to the perfect will of God. We should not then grieve Him. We grieve the Holy Spirit by our disobedience, allowing we should then allow Him to produce in us fruit. And I know, all of you know, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, one of the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in us is joy. And so in obedience to Him, the Holy Spirit leads us, directs us, equips us, enables us, empowers us, and He does all of this. And John says, including and specific to our passage today, discern truth. Discern the truth. And it's in this fourth chapter that John begins with his characteristic address. He begins, Beloved. A term of endearment, repeated over and over through this epistle. But when John uses the word beloved, he uses it with purpose. There's an intent to that term. And it's always to introduce a point of significance. Here, it seems to be a point, a turning point, to say, Beloved, pay attention. Beloved, I'm speaking to something very specific. Beloved, listen closely. And here, he follows that term of endearment, beloved, with an imperative. We would say a command. And what's his command? Well, let's look at it together in verse 1. Beloved. Do not believe, but test. Two imperatives. Do not believe, but test. Now, it's a a command given in love, but it's a command for what? It's a command for discernment. So great 
is the Apostle's love for Christ's church that he would keep us from deception. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And John's concern is not about, let me be clear, he's not concerned about a loss of salvation. He's not concerned that someone could do something that they could lose their salvation, which of course is impossible. Rather, what John is concerned about in this passage is Christians falling to the perils of unorthodoxy. And he's likely, historically speaking, he's likely alluding to the Gnostics who had infiltrated the church secretly and they had begun to spread a heresy that, well, you know, Jesus, it was really, he was more, he was, well, he was a spirit. He really didn't come in the flesh, the Gnostics argued. And the Gnostics plagued the early church and they, they sought to lead the gullible astray. But we need not leave this parked in history, right? Because just as there were false prophets and there were false teachers in the early church, so also there are false prophets and false teachers today. And John warns us about false teaching. In fact, what he says is, is that you need to understand that this is a spiritual matter. This is what Paul's getting at. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. John is conveying the same thing. He's saying, you need to be aware, this is a spiritual matter. Now, John uses this word spirit a number of times. In fact, just look at the entire passage with me, 1 through 6. And I just want to draw the repetition to your attention. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. He says, the spirit of God and every spirit that confesses. And every spirit that does not confess. And the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of truth. And the spirit of error. Whew, that's a lot of spirit, right? So the Greek word that John uses, panuma here, is used. And the, the, the ESV here is trying to help us a bit with some capitalization. We see some uppercase and lowercase s's here trying to help us a bit in the translation. But the general idea is it's the same word in John's conveying. This is a spiritual matter. There is a spiritual realm. Now, I know, you know, we're just flesh and blood. Here we are. This is all we see today. But we know as Christians, because as, super, as Christians we're supernaturalists, we know there's also a spiritual realm. And what John is saying here is in the spiritual realm, there's good and there's evil. That's essentially the idea. And behind falsehood, behind false teaching, are evil spirits. And behind gospel truth is the spirit of truth, which the, which the ESV rightly translates this by capitalizing that S. And so John commands us, now think about this, he commands the church that he loves he commands us, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits, singular, plural, to see whether they are from God. And so the question we should do as we're working our way through this passage, and maybe the question you're asking as well is, okay, so what in the world does that mean? What does test the spirits mean? Sounds a bit creepy, right? A bit mystical. What's he mean by that? Well, let's rescue it from the pages of fiction, right? Let's bring it back and let's understand, first of all, what does that word mean? What does this Greek word that's translated here, test, mean? It means to make a critical examination of something, to determine genuineness, to put to the test, to examine. And so what John is not advocating here is some kind of ethereal warfare from the pages of fiction or movies. It's like really practical. What he is advocating here, he is saying, understanding there is a spiritual war, there is a spiritual realm, be discerning. Apply your noggin. I'm not sure how that translates in Greek. Use critical thinking. Think critically. I am amazed, and I've said this from the pulpit before, and I've not changed my opinion from the last time that I said this, is one of the astonishing things to me is, as an American Christian, is how extraordinarily gullible the American evangelical church is. We may be the most gullible in the country. And I'm amazed at it. Because when you look at Scripture... All you got to do is a simple Bible study with a little word study on the side and you realize we're called to be critical thinkers. We're called to be discerning. We're called to look at the world and go... That's my little way of saying check mark box on discernment. 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 It doesn't mean we're a bunch of weirdos. The world thinks we're weirdos. It means that... Scripture calls us to be discerning, to test. But what specifically are we discerning? What's those little check marks? What are those things that we're called to examine? We are to examine whether we are being deceived, which we are told here that deception comes by evil spirits, And we are to practically identify those from the truth, which comes from the spirit of truth. So critical thinking, discerning, we are to look and go, is that guy lying? Is that a big fat lie? Or we're to hear and listen and go, that's truth. That comes from the Holy Spirit. John explains that evil spirits are not hiding in haunted houses. But he does say that they're working through the means of men and women. False prophets is how it's translated here. He says false prophets that have gone out into the world. Now, to say that they have gone out into the world probably is John's veiled reference to the fact that the Gnostic false prophets, the false teachers, were in the early church. And when they were identified, and when John and the other apostles began to point them out, 
And to say, that's not the truth. You're a liar. You're not telling the truth. They moved out and they advanced out into the world to deceive the gullible as many as they could. But this also applies to us as well as false teachers and false prophets also seek to infiltrate the church. As the gospel has advanced throughout the world, and as churches have assembled, so false prophets have infiltrated churches throughout the world. Jesus says, They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They appear to be genuine. And at first, everyone will say, well, of course, they're, they're part of a church, at least initially. But in secret, here's what the Apostle Peter says. He says, they sow destructive heresies, appealing to our fleshly desires. And they're not without success, leading many astray. But here's the key. They deceive, not with force, but with false words, Peter says. They know what to say, they know how to say it, and they say it in a way that is appealing to the flesh. As influential as false prophets can be, they are identifiable. And they're identifiable through what they say. Their confession then is void of the gospel. What a false prophet, what a false teacher says is void of the gospel. They do not preach or teach the gospel because they don't believe the gospel. They don't believe the truth of it. Nor do they have the spirit of truth who dwells within all true believers. It is the Holy Spirit, John says, who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, we should clarify something. What's confession? What is meant by confession? Confession is not merely acknowledgement. It's not merely intellectual assent. It's not merely reciting a creed and it's not a canned prayer. Anyone can say they believe in Jesus, right? A liar can say, I believe in Jesus. But what John calls us to do is to listen carefully for these words. And in summary, he's not just talking about the words, but what is conveyed in it. And listen closely, look at verse 2 with me. The confession should include that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The essence of that is a confession of identity. Of identity. Think about it. Jesus, a confession of incarnation. Christ, a confession of messianic fulfillment. Has come in the flesh. A confession of reality in time and space. Such a confession is tantamount to saying, as Paul said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's the confession of every true believer that our Lord Jesus Christ did indeed come and live and die and resurrect to life that we might have eternal life through Him. 
but it's also a confession of agreement with the Word of God. Confession of agreement with the Word of God. In fact, John reiterates this in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. We, and by we here contextually, he's referring to the prophets and apostles. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now think about that. That sounds to the world extraordinarily egotistical. We're reading it today in Christian context. But to the unbeliever, to hear someone say, you've got to believe what I'm saying. And if you don't believe what I'm saying, well then, you don't know the truth. Because I'm from God. The unbeliever says, what? What did that egomaniac just say? We understand that Scripture tells us that God raises up prophets, inspiring them with the Holy Spirit. Peter says they're carried along, as it were, by the Holy Spirit and gives to us the Scriptures. And so it's not an egotistical statement, but we look to the Word of God. And through the Word of God, believing the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints... And so spiritual discernment cannot be separated from the Word of God. Discernment and the Word of God, spiritually speaking, must be connected. As the Holy Spirit will always direct us to the Scriptures, not ever away. Those are emphatic statements, and I don't mean them with hyperbole. Please hear me clearly if you hear anything else. The Holy Spirit will always, without exception, not hyperbole, always direct us to the Word of God. It will never, the Holy Spirit, He will never, ever, ever direct us away from or in contradiction to the very Word of God. Yet, even a false prophet can say he believes the Bible. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, Sure, I believe the Bible. But does he or she willingly submit to the authority of Scripture? Is his confession of Christ derived from a cultural rendering of Jesus or from how Scripture reveals Jesus? Is his, in his confession, is Christ glorified? A right confession can be nothing less than what Paul declared to the Colossians. Listen to this. This is an incredible declaration of what we believe about Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, chapter 1, Colossians. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ, of his cross. And so we hear in that confession, that right confession given in Colossians, in all things Christ is preeminent. The false prophet and the false teacher seek to deceive, but he or she will never claim, will never uphold, will never lift up the glory of Christ. A credible confession exalts Christ, and it exalts Christ according to His Word only. Beware the man who gets in the way of this. Because he's not led by the Spirit of Christ, but he's led by the opposite, or what John uses the word anti or anti-Christ, as it's translated in English here, which essentially means the direct spiritual opposition to Christ. John says, it's gone out. This evil has gone out into the world, this anti-Christ, this opposition to the gospel, this opposition to the exaltation and the glory of Christ. It's out there. Holy Spirit will always, without exception, exalt Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I, I love this. He says of the true prophet, of the true preacher, of the true teacher, when you have heard him, you do not say, what a wonderful man. You say, what a wonderful Savior. You do not say, what a wonderful experience this man has had. You say, who is the man of whom he is speaking? The attraction is to Christ. He glorifies Christ. And so when we're listening to preaching, we're listening to teaching, we're listening to the Word of, of God, Christ is to be exalted. And only the one indwelled by the Spirit of Christ can do this because the Holy Spirit always confesses. The Holy Spirit always exalts Christ. And so if every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of truth, how then is anyone led astray? Have you ever thought about that? If the Christian is indwelled by the Spirit of truth, how is any believer led astray by false teaching? The answer, interestingly enough, is connected to how I began this sermon. It's connected to our joy. What hinders your joy as a believer, according to John's epistle? Well, first, sin, including an unwillingness to acknowledge it or confess it. Sin, hear me clearly, this is a good takeaway, sin is the robber of Christian joy. Second, a lack of love for fellow Christians, notably in the local church. Do you want to know who the most miserable person is in a local church? The most miserable Christian in a church is the one who cannot forgive, harbors resentment, and will not love his brethren as he has been loved by Christ. And then thirdly, worldliness. It's often manifested in a lust for worldly pleasure. The Christian who finds worldly pleasures more pleasing than the pleasures of Christ will find himself not pleased, but miserable. 
if you please. Let me say that again. The Christian who finds worldly pleasures more pleasing than the pleasures of Christ will find himself not pleased, but miserable. And all of these are hindrances to Christian joy, which is what I said from the very beginning. But they also contribute to a lack of discernment and a spiritual gullibility to false teaching. And so... Let's just get frank this morning. Very practical. I desire joy and you do too. And I don't want to be led astray by any Christ-denying false teacher. And so I ask today, are you habitually engaged in sin or harboring unconfessed sin in your life? Then repent! Repent! Now, this very moment, and run like a dog from it. Turn, which is what the Greek word repent means. Turn from the sin. Oh, John, I've been struggling with this sin in my life. Well, doggone it, deal with it right now. I'm tired of hearing you whine about it. <laughs> deal with it now. Because the Holy Spirit who dwells within every believer is convicting you and He's convicting me to deal with our sin. Confess your sin, brothers and sisters in Christ, because He is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then run like a scalded dog from that sin. Right? Are you at odds with your brother? Unwilling to forgive and seek restoration? Well, Jesus speaks specifically to this. And He says, that is one big fat sin. Well, He doesn't actually say that. That's how I translate it. That's a sin. Stop it. Cut it out. Repent of your sin against Christ's commandment. Love your brother from the heart. Because John says in 1 John chapter 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. And so, one of the, to take that and put it in reverse, one of the ways that people are led astray by false teaching is not loving the brethren. The casualty is being gullible. And, finally, do not love the world or the things in the world. John says this. He says, here's the problem with worldliness. As attractive as it is, here's the problem with it. It's short-sighted at best. Did he really say that? He did. Listen to this. Here's what he says. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, pause there for just a second, that's one big summation of worldliness. That's what John's getting at. All this, all of this worldliness is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, I love the way missionary Jim Elliott put it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As I've gotten older, and I know many of you are older than I am. Some really, 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 really older than I am. But no names. 
as I've gotten older, I, I have become more aware of legacy and what's the deal? Why am I here? What's my contribution? You don't have these thoughts at 16, right? Or 26, I guess. I don't know. But I've thought more and more about it. And I've thought, you know, that's really what John's teaching us. He's teaching us, don't be short-sighted. Worldliness ain't worth it. It's a lie. It's a deception. Do you want to make a contribution? Make a contribution to the kingdom. Think long-term. How long, John? I don't know. Forever? Think about what God has called us and given us, and it's not to be entangled with the detriments of worldliness. Beloved, or I love the way John refers to us, little children, you are not victims, and you're not haplessly vulnerable to the ways of evil. When we read a passage like this, we don't need to read it and go, Oh no, spirits of evil. I saw a scary movie once. Once. I don't think I've made it through one, actually. The world wants you to fear what you shouldn't fear and not fear what you should fear. The world wants you to be a fa- a fa- fear evil spirits. Wants you to fear Lucifer. Don't. Let us fear God and God alone in reverence and in awe of Him. But Christ has already conquered evil. He has already defeated the enemy and called us as little children. John says, you are from God. I'm in verse 4. You're going to want to note this. You are from God. And, past tense, have overcome them. That's evil. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And for brothers and sisters here today who struggle with fear, you're going to want to memorize that verse. Because the Holy Spirit is greater. The Spirit of Christ is greater than anything in this world. John doesn't say you're greater. This is not some plug for your self-esteem. No, you're not. You're not greater. Satan's more powerful than you are, and his minions are more deceptive than you can deal with. You ain't greater. But the Spirit of God who dwells within us is. He is greater than he who is in the world. And such a statement then does not deny the real struggles. We have real struggles in the Christian life, including falling to temptation, conflict in the church, worldly allurement, and a susceptibility to false teaching. But but John is teaching us to look upon and to rely upon our helper, the Holy Spirit. The joyful Christian then is the dependent one. The joyful Christian is blessedly dependent. And in his dependence, he finds the strength to live for Christ and the accompanying joy that God has given us. 
Eternal Spirit, God of truth, our contrite hearts inspire. Ignite a flame of heavenly love and feed the pure desire. Tis thine to soothe the sorrowing mind with guilt and fear oppressed. Tis thine to bid the dying live and give the weary rest. Subdue the power of every sin, whatever that sin may be, that we in singleness of heart may worship only Thee. Then with our spirit witness bear that we are sons of God, redeemed from sin and death and hell through Christ's atoning blood. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.